The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Hello, Sequel Questers. This is a Sequel Quest Rewind. Diving back into the archive to February of 2018. This is episode 66, a Flash Gordon sequel. Welcome to Sequel Quest, the podcast where Adam, Jeff, and Jeremy invite you on a cinematic journey to create prequels, sequels, and reboots to your favorite movie franchises. Joined by special guests along the way. Sequel Quest is go for long, so let the adventure begin now. Clyde Design Board, what plating can you offer me today? An obscure podcast about fake movies, your majesty. The hosts refer to it as... Jupiter Ascending Sequel, most entertaining. Yes, your majesty. And their Galaxy Quest episode isn't too bad either. Sequel Quest! Ah! It's ridiculous! As if Freddie Mercury were still with us today. <laughs> oh, this is what happens when Adam has so much free time. <laughs> <laughs> and that's like the third version of it. I, uh, I worked too hard on that Steve, for how it came out. Tell us that. Oh. <laughs> Greetings, inhabitants of Mongo, and welcome to this week's action packed episode of Sequel Quest. Let's meet the spacefaring crew who's being held at gunpoint by a crazy podcasting scientist. Huh. Currently flying blind on a rocket cycle, it's Jeff. Hey, hey. Next up, it's the guy who knows this Ming is a psycho. It's Jeremy. Oh, he's definitely a psycho. Often being asked, haven't you any spirit at all? And answering, no, I'm Adam. <laughs> This week, we've invited a special guest to join us in overthrowing an evil empire. He's the host of the Nerd Lunch podcast and its spinoff down the rabbit hole. A man of many faces and facial hair configurations who just <laughs> found out that Gordon's alive. Welcome, Mr. Carlin Trammell. How you doing, CT? Sequel quest! Sequel quest! I love you, but we only have 14 hours to save the Earth! <laughs> very very accurate in fact <laughs> saving or boring the earth we'll find uh, out I'm, I'm optimistic at this point we're gonna save it <laughs> very day. much so by the way if you've been following us on twitter at sqpod you have felt the excitement the lead in up to this episode <laughs> ct you've had a little bit of fun right getting ready yeah, I, I'm just so excited to talk to somebody about this movie because no one ever wants to talk to me about this movie. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, well, luckily you found some people who have an actual history with this film outside of ridiculous memes online. Exactly. Um, like you've actually seen it and you, you're familiar yeah, with it. <laughs> exactly. I, I have a copy on VHS in front of me right here. Possibly the best way to view it. That's debatable. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> I, I do like my uh, HD version of it. My Blu-ray. So we're going to get into our histories with the film just to kind of introduce this character to people who may not know him because he's incredibly old. <laughs> Flash Gordon was created in the 1930s as a comic strip rival to the Buck Rogers comic strip. So he was just jumping on the bandwagon. So really, by the time this movie came out, the character was almost 50 years old. So now imagine from 1980 to today, what, what is this character really all about? So let's talk a little bit about that. As far as what was everybody's awareness of Flash Gordon outside of this film? CT, what did you know about Flash Gordon before you were introduced to the movie? Well, I was four when the movie came out, and so this might have been my first exposure. If, if it wasn't this, then it was the uh, Filmation cartoon. But those two were very close when they came out. Right. And it's worth mentioning, it started as a comic strip. It's had many different interpretations over the years. Like you just mentioned, there's that Filmation. If you don't know Filmation, they're the people who made He-Man, Brave Star, that other Ghostbusters cartoon with a gorilla instead of Slimer. Yeah, the knockoff. You know? <laughs> Which is based on a live action Ghostbusters from like the 50s or something. Wow. Yeah, wow. yeah. I mean, so there's that. There's also another version in the 80s that was uh, produced by Marvel, a cartoon called Defenders of the Earth. CT, can you tell us a little bit about that show? Oh, well, Defenders of the Earth is like the King Syndicate comic strip characters. So it's Flash Gordon, the Phantom, Mandrake, the Magician, and they uh, unite along with their kids to fight Ming. And there's there's some interesting ideas there. It's not as good because it becomes very kid centric. It's like, hey, we're going to learn about the kids doing stuff. And uh, I <laughs> yeah, who wants that? Really? <laughs> I, you know, I always loved always loved Robin and the Teen Titans. But but beyond that, I've never I've never really glommed on to like, hey, here's a kid. And I just that's not why I'm watching this cartoon. Yeah, despite what every publisher thinks, right? right. Yeah. Especially not at this age. Yeah. Now, what's Especially interesting not, yeah. is about a decade later, there was a 90s cartoon that was updating Flash Gordon to be extreme. And Flash and Dale were reimagined as skateboarding teenagers oh, that end up going into space to fight yeah. big. It's Flash had the bowl cut going on, the oh, skater, yeah. skater cut. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, that one, again, not not as exciting. I even remember seeing a racy parody film on the shelf at Blockbuster Video back in the day called Flesh Gordon. Oh, CT yeah. used to work at Blockbuster. Did you guys stock that particular tape? <laughs> I don't think, you know, Blockbuster was known for not carrying those types of movies. Right. So we, we well, it, it had the 17 and older sticker on it, but it was definitely Blockbuster. I think it was light. You know, it wasn't that. Okay. That old. All right. No, I don't, I don't I remember. If I recall, it was not so light. Like it was, yeah, it was pretty much one long naked shot. If I recall, see, so Jeff has watched it. There we go. I'm, sure <laughs> I, so. I'm not going to admit to actually watching it, but just a passing familiarity. Uh, so speaking of which, Jeff, where do you come on board the Flash Gordon train? Had you heard of him prior to getting involved with the film and beyond? No, I saw the movie when I was a kid and my parents would always talk about how much they enjoyed it, but it, they would always talk about the soundtrack that was as classic rock fans. That's the only reason we watched this movie, but we did watch it a lot and just talk about 
how great the soundtrack was. But I wasn't familiar with, even to be honest, I'm not even that familiar with the comic book and the pre-serial Flash Gordon before the movie. Uh, the only thing, which is not before the movie, the only extra Flash Gordon exposure that I have is one of my favorite made-for-TV movies in the late 90s was, oh, what was it called? It was called Captain Zoom and the World of Tomorrow, I want to say. And it was clearly like a Flash Gordon knockoff where it was supposed to be this TV serial guy who gets abducted and goes to a foreign planet. But he was just like ridiculous. And it was as opposed Wasn't to Flash Gordon. Was that an Gordon. episode of DuckTales? <laughs> no, no, it was, it was with the guy... What's his name? It wasn't Charles Rocket, but it was that guy that looks like Charles Rocket, who was the main character. And it was just so silly and because he was just an idiot who would just, you know, not like Flash where he's a hero. Like he was the opposite of that. And he would say dumb things and they put him in all the tropes and stuff like that. Like there's the one where the, the his companion wears a helmet because he's so hideous that no one will ever love him. And he's like, what if you take it off? I think we'll all appreciate you for who you are. And the guy takes off his helmet and he goes, good Lord. And then the guy gets a look set. So anyway, that's the closest that I have. So. Okay. Well, and you mentioned the serial, you know, like that was actually my first exposure to any type of Flash Gordon was there. Were How these old are you, Adam? Oh, quite, <laughs> quite old, my friend. As you know, I love the shadow. <laughs> but um, I used to go to the library and at my local library, they had these VHS tapes for rent and the, I remember seeing Buster Crab is Flash Gordon. And I'm like, yeah, that old black and white guy has weird hair. I'm going to take the Captain Marvel serials instead. And I, <laughs> that's what I rented. So I was not at all familiar, you know, with Flash Gordon other than saying, I know that there's a character and there's a name there. But and Jeremy, I know you've not even seen this film, correct? No. I've seen clips from it, but no, I've not seen this. I've not seen any of them uh, i attempted that awful like early 2000s pilot tv show that they had on that was flash gordon modernized the oh the sci-fi show yeah i think it was sci-fi it was very cw-esque uh, <laughs> had that guy from uh, smallville yeah Jeremy, we're going to ask you to sit quietly in the corner until the end of the show. <laughs> oh, yes. I, I'm here to break your ties, and you guys have to convince me to watch this. Or to watch what you guys come up with, anyway. Yeah, well, so, Jeff, you're telling me this was a family favorite, a musical that your parents would put on. But, CT, how did you come to have such a love and enthusiasm for Flash Gordon? I don't really know. I, I remember when I was a kid, I, I would I watched this movie, and my dad liked it. And then I went years before I saw it again. Like I would have been four or five or six, like that that age. And I didn't see it again until I was in college. And I, something about just the the kitschiness, the cheesiness, and how in so many ways it takes itself seriously, and in so many ways it absolutely does not take itself seriously. And it's this perfect meshing to me. And uh, I do find it to be pretty faithful to the original story of the comic strip. They've got. Uh, the same basic premise. He goes to Mongo, Baron's in it, Fulton's in it. You know, so it's pretty faithful, lots of uh, uh, homages. And then, you know, obviously, as was mentioned, the Queen soundtrack and score on this thing makes anything better. I have the soundtrack. I I, I've been listening to it for the last two or three weeks just to put myself in the right mind frame for this podcast. You know, it can inspire it one to do anything. 
Well, and including ordering a T-shirt with your own name on it in the Flash font, right, <laughs> yes. CT? Yes. Yes. Uh, a while ago, I was uh, – I can't remember what happened. I was sitting on the couch, and I started sketching on my iPad using uh, the Flash uh, font oh! or if it's on a T-shirt. <laughs> I, I drew out my name, and I said, well, now i got to put this on a T-shirt, and I did. That is awesome. See? We love it. We love it. Now, someone else who just found themselves taking it to the next level – is our co-host here, Jeff. Now, I had not seen Flash Gordon. I had not heard of this movie. And then in college one day, Jeff sat me down. He had gotten a DVD of Flash Gordon. And Jeff was the first person I knew who had a DVD player. So he's like, I'm going to show you this. And I was like, okay. I was more impressed with the technology than the film (laughs) itself at the time. But then Jeff dropped a bomb on me, which is, by the way, I'm turning this into a play and I'm putting it on at my college. And I was like, wait, what? (laughs) Jeff, tell us a little bit about this production because it was amazing. I don't think the transaction went quite like that. I don't think I sat him down like he was an investor or something like that. (laughs) Like, Adam, here's what's going on. No, no, no. Now, something, well, and I was just looking at, I was going through my files here, and I did find our Liberata, Liber, Liber, whatever they call those things, the little pamphlet that you hand out when people come to the play. So I think the best way to sum it up is that it was my friend Frank and I that wrote this together. And we decided to put the quote from Star Trek on at the end of the Liberato that says, you're a great one for logic. I'm a great one for rushing in where angels fear to tread. We're both extremists. Reality is probably somewhere in between. And that sums up the adventure that was Flash Gordon, the stage play. Um, (laughs) For one, my friend Frank, who does have a last name, however, refused to put his last name on the play. So everywhere that you see, it just says Frank with an exclamation point. So we had the idea that the most ridiculous thing we could think of doing would take a a movie like Flash Gordon and make it a one-act play. So that's what we decided to do. Uh, Unfortunately, Frank and I are very different, have very different senses of humor. So my sense of humor is always about homages and making references to things. And his sense of humor is very absurdist. So the combination of the two turned into Flash Gordon the play. For example, Topal's ridiculously thick accent so that most of the time I can't understand what he's saying. I was convinced he kept pronouncing his name as Hung Zarkov instead of Hans (laughs) Zarkov. So, of course, that was what we had to do is that his name is Hung Zarkov. So clearly he has to be well endowed. Are you sure uh, this then, wasn't Flash Gordon the stage play, Jeff? Uh, it, it could have been. <laughs> yeah, that was that would fit very well in there. Because then a lot of the jokes that we put in there, and then we did the the intro thing that I was just thinking of. Uh, we did that one word for word that Adam just did, not quite word for word, but <laughs> but I've always thought it was so strange how Max Van Sydow as Ming the Merciless is playing that as straight as one possibly can, and that's what adds. I I don't think he's joking at all ever, and it's Max Van Sydow for crying out loud. So we got our Ming the Merciless was my friend Sean, who was kind of like known as the Shakespearean actor at, at, at our college. And so he was willing to shave his head. And so he got the role as Ming the Merciless. <laughs> we actually wrote the role of Hung Zarkov to embarrass one of our friends because he was a rather hairy fellow. And so we wanted to put him in that uh, skin tight suit that he ends up wearing. But then he had to back out at the last point. So, of course, 
I had to become Hung Zarkov, which was very <laughs> awkward then having my mom come and see the play. And yeah, that got a little weird. But anyway. Now, the uh, best part, Jeff, though, is the casting of Flash. Please let the audience know about this. Oh, yeah. Well, that was kind of the, the linchpin of the entire thing is that it was going to make or break based on, of course, Flash Gordon. And so our only thought, the only option was going to be Rick Golson, who was our professor. So our professor at Orange Coast College, he played Flash Gordon, which got a little bit awkward because there's the one scene where Aura, who was, of course, played by a student, was supposed to try and seduce Flash. We had to play that really, really carefully so that there was no fireable offenses or anything like that. Now, for the visual on this Alex Golson, think Rick, of Ted Rick. Knight from the Mary Tyler Moore show. He played it just like him. That's who I was seeing yeah. when I was sitting in the audience. And it was just like, hey, hey, well, how about that? And like yeah. It was like totally <laughs> over the top and totally goofy cinema hero. And to kind of sum it up, I've, I've gone on too long, but just because there's, you know, how do you sum up Flash Gordon in a brief <laughs> sense, especially a stage play version? But to give you a glimpse of Flash Gordon, the play, and of Frank, exclamation point, his vision was he always liked all of his plays to end with everybody dying and then the epilogue being everybody comes back just gravely injured and they kind of hobble their way in. <laughs> So that was everybody died at the end of our play, but then everybody hobbles back in and Flash and Dale slow dance, but slow dance like they're in the sixth grade. So they hold each other as far apart as they can with their arms fully extended as all the rest of us gather around and slowly sing a ballad version of the theme song. <laughs> Flash, ah, as they dance. That was the wow. end of the show. Bravo, bravo, <laughs> wow. Flash Gordon, the stage play. Is there oh. video footage of this oh. stage play? I wish, I wish. Oh. And, and I, I videotaped everything back then, and I yeah. can't believe I didn't tape right. this because it was an amazing <laughs> show. Supposedly Frank hunted down any video footage and destroyed it. So <laughs> I, uh, no. uh, it's like George Lucas and those uh, holiday special DVDs. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> oh, speaking of Mr. Lucas, I think it's worth mentioning C.T., I think you know a little bit about this trivia here, but what does George Lucas have to do with Flash Gordon? Well, uh, you heard he made a little movie called Star Wars, but he did that because he couldn't get the rights to Flash Gordon. And then when Star Wars was such a hit, Dino De Laurentiis, the producer, said, I think we should make Flash Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just kind of interesting how it all came around that way. Yeah, but let's get into a little bit of the production on this film. Just let's talk about some of our favorite things, because I feel like Flash Gordon is to space adventure films what Xanadu is to roller skating. You know, <laughs> I, I it's flashy, 100 agree. It's glittery, and they're both it's, 1980 movies. They're both yes. like they're both cut from the same cloth as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> now, originally, my understanding is that Dino De Laurentiis conceived the film as a drama. He wanted it to be like a serious action-adventure film, but due to some poor translation between Italian and English and <laughs> him not really getting it all, the end result was a film like the Adam West Batman, right, that was played straight and then yet has some comedic elements to it, so it kind of comes out as all comedy. Some but... comedic elements. Oh, God. <laughs> That's the part, too, that I was and we were talking about it tonight that like uh uh is it possible like 
I don't think Sam Jones that plays Flash Gordon, is he really this talented? Because he says now, oh, I was in on the joke the whole time. Were you? Like, I don't think you're that talented an actor. Especially well, considering he doesn't do the audio for like two thirds of his lines. Yeah. yeah, he had a falling out with the producer and just left. And so all the ADR was another uncredited, unknown actor. Nobody can remember who was the voice of Flash Gordon. But the other part of it, too, like you said, is he talented? No, the writer ultimately and the director kind of were talented. But the the credited writer of the story is a man who actually has his credits name in the credits of Batman 66, which is Lorenzo Semple Jr. So, I mean, the fact that they have very similar tones, you know, they have that farcical (laughs) kind of nature is is right on. Now, I feel like the way that Troll 2, the Italian director and screenwriter, still claim it's a serious, very American horror movie people just don't understand the deeper meanings you know <laughs> De Laurentiis I don't think really got it all reports when he saw screenings and people were laughing he was upset he did not get it why are you laughing this is American hero saving the day mm. yeah see hold I, on, I think hold I'm on, on this side. is starting to sound agree. a lot like uh Tommy Wiseau in the room here yeah <laughs> yeah there's some uh, of that but you're on board CT you feel the heroics I, you know, I, I do. I mean, I think there is some uh, some humor, but I look at this and I love how straight it's played. I mean, it, it, the comment was made about Max Van Sydow and and I like watching it from that perspective. There are some funny lines. There's some I mean, Melody Anderson in this. She oh. has all the best lines. I mean, she's oh, got like, the one I alluded to earlier. She's just and she pours everything into everything she says. And so I actually enjoy watching it from the perspective that it is serious and it is this pulpy 1930s-esque uh, adventure just told in 1980. The, my thought, like, is Brian Blessed playing it straight? Like, the way that he he goes so over the top with Volton, or Voltan, other than Sam Jones, no one else pronounces it Volton, but the, <laughs> the, 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 the Hawkman, and just the way that he... I don't know. And the thing that Adam sent us where it said like what some of the information that he kept making the noise pew 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 every time he'd shoot his gun and they kept having to redo take after take because he kept saying that. Oh, but his smile is so infectious. There has never been a more charmingly boisterous performance. I mean, I, I imagine also the director was just supposed to be, Brian, a little louder, please. My eardrums aren't bleeding yet. Well, but it's like, it's, it's, it was John Reese davies was he in on the joke when he was playing Gimli? I mean, it's to me, it's the same kind of level of performance. It's this yeah. like very boisterous character, and he does a fabulous job with it. Well, the other thing, I've never heard of this before, but apparently in England, especially, his line, Gordon's alive, is like the biggest meme before there were memes. Like, it's like... I guess quoted in cinema and like lots of writers put it in their movies. I guess it's okay, but it's not even like that's not one of his loud over the top ones. It's almost right. like God, it's alive. Well, he does. <laughs> he again, he he milks it for every. It is. It's that interesting thing that I don't know that we always get today is the fact that this is other than Sam Jones, ironically the main character. This is an all-star cast. I mean, Brian Blessed is a legend of Shakespearean actors, as is, you know, Timothy Dalton, Max Van Sydow. Like, these are huge, big people. And here's this guy used to reading Shakespeare, and he reads his line that says, let today be known as Flash Gordon Day. Okay, Okay, let's do this thing. I don't. 
Well, and I, speaking of which, like, you know, like you say, we have these fantastic actors. I especially love, you know, the gentleman playing Clytus, you know, oh, like it is yes. golden Dr. Doom who, armor. Who just, who just passed away, Peter Weingart. Oh, really? Oh, no. Just, yeah, just recently passed away. Just yeah, with, the last, with the last couple days. He's just relishing the evil way he gets to deliver his lines. You know, you can just tell he's having so much fun behind the mask. And when he comes out of the mask, that's... <laughs> Oh. That moment when his eyes just bug out, that tug. I mean, that is. And not to change the topic, but we've not ever had a better Doctor Doom on screen than no. Clytus. <laughs> it's true, absolutely. Like a Destro sort of. A, yeah. Now, do you guys have like what's a favorite scene for you? Like, when oh. you think of Flash Gordon, you go to this moment. Jeff, how about for you? Man, that's a tough one. So, well, I, I got to give two. I know it's cheating, but uh, the first one, and because it because it, the reason it's cheating is because one's from my play, is that I spent the what was it in in when they're on Arbor and uh, which come on, you made a tree planet Arbor. Oh lord, <laughs> well, that goes back to the comic it strip. It does. Stuff. It wasn't like it's the same thing. And the prince's name is Baron. Prince Baron, not Baron Prince, Bar Prince ridiculous. But anyway, um, and then when he has to go chase Flash Gordon through the whatever. But anyway, so in my version, he chased him through the things. And I wanted Baron to have this big monologue that I took from Star Trek Wrath of, Wrath of Khan, and they took it from Moby Dick, which is I'll chase him around the moons of Nebula and round Perdition's flame before I give him up. And I spent, oh man, I must have spent two days working with the guy on that one particular line. And Frank stood up and left at one point. He's like, are you kidding me? But I love that. I love that scene. As far as in the movie, oh, I guess it has to be that random football sequence where all of a sudden Flash decides to have a football game with the guards. And meanwhile, Ming starts thinking about like, are they taking their drugs? And like, it just, it makes no sense. Because the line that always gets me, and I always quote it, is right before that when they're walking into the hallway and the ball of death says, freeze, lizard man. And this lizard <laughs> man comes out of nowhere and freezes and then it kills him. It's like, what? He froze. He did what you wanted. I don't, that one, that, that moment is just like quintessential Flash Gordon. How about you, CT? Yeah, that, well, that, I mean, the football scene is what comes to mind uh, because it's so iconic for this movie. But but the other thing that, that stands out to me, and I, this is what I remember from when I originally watched it as a kid, is when they are in Sky City and uh, Baron and Flash are fighting on that platform with the spikes. Yeah. And that thing starts rocking and, you know, Flash winds up saving Baron. I mean, that that to me is like... And then, of course, you know, he saves Baron and Baron's like, oh, Flash is, you know, he's our hero now. And he's, he's just a complete 180. <laughs> it takes just this one simple act to turn Baron completely around. And oh, I love it. I love Which it so I, I never buy because Timothy Dalton to me has always been a bad guy because I know it mostly from the Rocketeer. So he's two faced to me, no matter what. Like, I can't <laughs> trust mostly him. He's from James the Rocketeer. Bond. He's James Bond. <laughs> oh, I, I know. License to kill whatever oh, to be the living daylights no he still he just looks yeah. evil all the time so i don't, I don't trust him and like so your i, hatred I for, uh, your hatred for tim robbins even though you've only seen him <laughs> in, what's that movie zathra or whatever oh uh, yes Zathura, yes he's he's okay <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> no, uh, but yeah. And I guess, you know, for me, I appreciate just the set design and the costumes and the production value of this is not small. Like even, I mean, you could say it looks ridiculous, but to me, like when the Hawkmen are coming in and attacking, the sheer number of actual Hawkmen, there aren't models in that right. shot. It's just layer upon layer upon layer of people in harnesses. I mean, that's a visual for me that I'm so impressed by because even in, you know, the Wizard of Oz, they didn't do that. You know, there's <laughs> monkey models on strings and here, like the Italians went all the way. They gave it to you. Uh-huh. Well, I think it's one of the, you know, the production design. It, to me, Mongo feels like an alien world. It, it has a completely different vibe and feeling like you're, I'm not on Earth. Uh, Star Trek, a lot of times alien planets, it's like, this is the cave set or, hey, we're in a random green field in California. Uh, Mongo feels like an alien world. And that production designer is a genius. I mean, he doesn't do much else. He's a costume designer for the most part. But uh, on this, he like went all out and I love it. Yeah, I mean, I especially love all like the smoke and the clouds and how they really manipulate all that. I mean, it's just it's super fun and it looks great. And getting back into the soundtrack just very briefly, like the soundtrack is iconic. But I always wonder, like, is it really good? Like, is the Flash Gordon theme song a good song because as you can tell from my attempt to parody it like it's really hard to get all those words in there and Freddie Mercury is just kind of like he'll save with a mighty hand every man every woman every child he's a mighty flash (laughs) yeah he's a miracle he's I mean it's just like it's not really that great a tune I mean well I I was gonna I do prefer hero which is the closing song to the opening song Uh, that that to me is the uh, the better song of the of the soundtrack and then a lot of the other music they did too like the football theme they did that music the dun 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 so I I think there's a lot of great queen music on this and I would concede that the Flash Gordon theme song while it is very iconic and very energetic and inspiring uh, maybe it is not the most perfect song ever, but <laughs> see, I feel like, and, and my wife and I were talking about this. I feel like without this soundtrack, this movie would have just kind of been bizarre. We would just be watching it. We'd be like, this is just weird. But then it's kind of like the soundtrack makes it spectacular, not in a good way necessarily. It's no, just, in a good way, in, 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 a, well, <laughs> in, a, in a way of some sort, but it's not like spectacular. Like this is now a brilliant movie. No, hopefully that's not what we're saying, but it turns it from, from bizarre into goofy, cartoony, pew, pew, pew. To quote a phrase. Yeah, you're right. It does wrap the whole film and it brings it together because unlike so many bad movies that are just like uneven and strange and awkward. This movie is ridiculous, but cohesive. Like it's all on the same level of uh, jokes. Cohesive. And- oh, okay. If you're going now, I was going to say cohesive storytelling. Uh, sure. I know. What, yeah, I know I, what happens in this movie. Right. I, you can yeah. always tell what's going on. It is, oh. But then it's like they try and brainwash Zarkov, and he's singing the Beatles song, yes. and then all of a sudden he gets a sky sled, and then, like you said, with Baron, then he's like, "Oh, we're buddies now." But you I have to say the editing made sense, but the story you have to does. You reach your hand into this strange bark creature that may kill you. What? Just say no. I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> well, it's interesting, though, like, like what you're talking about, Adam. A couple of years ago, I did a, a bad movie night at my old church with my students. And it was really interesting kind of analyzing what makes a movie a bad movie. Because it's not all the same. Like, Jeremy, you were talking about with The Room and Tommy Wiseau, where it was just kind of like... 
some combination of narcissism and just obliviousness and no one telling him or maybe people telling him he just didn't listen that he was you know crazy or whatever but then you get others that are just like giant swings and misses and then where other people are on board with it this is kind of like again it's maybe closer to the giant swing and miss but did they hit their target is this what they were trying to create maybe i i haven't been able to nail this one down well, but again, I, I think it's it's one of those movies where you could feel it all like just for the sheer extravagance of it. Again, it's like Xanadu. The soundtrack was a hit. The movie was not. But the film itself has so much going on visually. They're like, OK, I can actually sit through this and just say that that many people on roller skates, that many people dancing through a department store. Gene Kelly, you know, like you'll jump on board because it's got a couple names and it's got some fanfare and some excitement. And I feel it's the same with this movie. Like it doesn't get dull and it doesn't get where you're just like okay i'm not on board with this now because you're like i'm on board with this because it's ridiculous i'll take it now you know i know where this is going see so. except for i'm not sure everyone feels that way about xanadu adam i think you <laughs> feel that way about <laughs> I, xanadu well there's I'm one more you, person on this I'm, podcast i'm 100 with you adam you're yeah. <laughs> but let's uh as we get ready to get into our pitches here then jeremy can you give us for those who have not seen the film and we're saying the story is able to be followed can you give us a quick plot synopsis <laughs> Oh, boy. All right. This is starring Max Van Sydow in Orange Face, Sam Jones, <laughs> Timothy Dalton, Brian Blessed, Topol and Melody Anderson with music by Queen. An interstellar dictator, Ming the Merciless, launches an attack on the Earth. Star quarterback Flash Gordon and ace reporter Dale Arden are taken hostage on a rocket ship by the overly zealous scientist Dr. Hans Zarkov. Landing on the planet Mongo, the trio meet the wild inhabitants of this strange world, including hawk and lizard men, before ultimately uniting these warring tribes against their evil leader as Flash becomes savior of the universe. All right. Well, again, so as CT has mentioned to us on Twitter and at the beginning of the show, he spent so much time on his pitch. So we're excited <laughs> to hear how that pays off for us. So CT, take it away. Well, I do want to segue. I do think it's interesting that you know, this this might be the first time that we're actually given permission by the film itself to make the sequel because it's right there in the lyrics to the hero. The continuation is yours for the making. So that's what we're doing. We're finally, <laughs> we're finally all these years later, 38 years later, making the continuation. So thank you, Queen. For permission. So this is something where I, I think I'm satisfied with one film that occurred in 1980. I don't necessarily need another one. Uh, but if I were going to have another one, I would think I'd rather it be something that took place in uh, 82 or thereabouts. So I set this in that uh, I did that kind of what you the game you play sometimes where it's the alternate reality as though this occurred just a couple of years later. That said, with some slight work, uh, this could be something produced in the modern day as uh, an animated film akin to those Adam West Batman movies that came out. But per pretend this is 1982. And let me present to you the sequel to 1980s Flash Gordon. Flash Gordon saves the universe. 
So the opening uh, credits start rolling. We get the familiar Queen song again. We're bringing that back. It, perhaps it's a slight remix or something like that, just to make it stand out a little bit different. And we have a series of scenes from the first film, but instead of live action, it's rotoscope animation, just to give it that fun difference. Cool. And in particular, we're recapping the meeting of Flash and Dale, and then their encounter with Zarkov, them traveling to Mongo. And then what I want to highlight here is we're seeing how merciless is, is Ming, and we're getting that throne room scene, but we're seeing Seeing where Ming kills Thun, who is the king of Ardentia. It's a very brief moment, but Thun tries to kill Ming and Ming kills him instead. We get some more of our Aura and Baron's interactions. Uh, we see Flash and Baron fighting on the platform. And then just some of the fight at the end and uh, Ming's demise uh, and then him turning the ring on himself and disappearing. These are things I want to definitely highlight because they come up in Flash Gordon 2. So as the credits end, we uh, we cut to Baron and Flash. They are traveling to Ardentia. And this is the land that was formerly ruled by Thun, who was killed by Ming in the first movie. As they're traveling there, we're finding out that they've been on this quest to travel to the different lands. And most of Mongo has agreed to sign a peace treaty to unite under Baron, and there's going to be this upcoming ceremony, but the new queen of Ardentia has been the holdout. So they're going to go there and try and talk to her. And arriving there, they have to face off against Queen Thunda, the daughter of Thun. And she is played by the awesome Grace Jones. And she is still enraged over her father's death in the first movie and particularly upset with Baron because he stood by while Thun was killed and did nothing. But then he later on united with an outsider, this Flash Gordon. So she's she's seeing in this contradiction with him and can't figure out why she should unite under him. So they have to fight her and Flash uses his charm and eventually uh, convinces her to unite under Baron's rule. And so they all are going to head back to the, the palace to sign the treaty. Now, while that's all going on, we're going to cut through different scenes. I'm just kind of giving you the, the overarching plots here. We would be uh, back at Mongo and at Ara's insistence, Voltan has headed up a search for Ming's ring. She knows of its power and it has gone missing. Zarkov, meanwhile, is studying Ara's ring to figure out if there's a way he can scan for Ming's. Uh, as he's studying this ring, uh, he determines that the ring is a is a part of a larger power source. And uh, Ara explains, well, Ming stole it from someone many years ago, this evil queen who he delighted in defeating. But until Flash, she was the only one who ever got away from him. And so Zarkov, as he continued to study Ara's ring, he begins to have visions of, of this woman uh, who reminds Zarkov of his late wife. And he also has visions of Ming. Meanwhile, Dale and Aura are also working with the palace guards and the personnel and the former forces of Ming to make arrangements for this uh, impending peace treaty. We get some nice exchanges between Dale and Aura. And we, uh, we learn Aura is still hesitant to commit to Baron. Dale just wants to marry Flash, whether it's now or on Earth. She just wants it to happen. And uh, during this time, we're introduced to Queen Freya, who we saw briefly in the first movie. She's the queen of uh, Phrygia, which is uh, an ice part of the world. Baron and Flash return with Thunder. As they arrive, Zarkov comes up to Flash, and he's, he's wanting to tell Flash that he fears maybe Ming isn't dead. Uh, but Flash sees Dale and he kind of blows Zarkov off and doesn't get all the information because he only has eyes for Dale. Representatives from all of Mongo are present. We're finally going to have this big ceremony where Baron officiates over it to sign this big peace treaty by all the leaders. As the ceremony starts, the palace is attacked by none other than the evil queen that we have seen visions of with Zarkov's uh, research. And it is Queen Azura, played by Kathleen Turner, coming <laughs> off body heat at this point and, and her minions. And they're forced to be reckoned with and caught by surprise the new mongo forces are outmatched voltan is killed 
palace is uh, wrecked, and thanks to the help of Queen Freya, Baron and Dale are able to get away. But Flash, Zarkov, Thunda, and Aura are caught. And Flash and Thunda, as they lock eyes and they decide they have a, ch- a shot to take Azura out, but before uh, they can get to her, she whips out her black-gloved hand that is now wielding the ring that Ming once had. She zaps Flash and Thunda, and they disappear. Everyone believes them dead. Azura takes Aura and Zarkov captive as the others go off. The survivors uh, head to Phrygia at the behest of the queen. It's this hostile area that is not welcoming. They have to face these ice monsters and stuff before they can find a place to rest. And Baron is despondent at the capture of Aura and the loss of his new kingdom. We then cut to Flash and Thunder, and they have appeared in the Ring Dimension. And Flash realizes that they have been transported to some other place as, as a result of this ring. They haven't actually been killed. Then he begins to remember what Zarkov was saying, that Ming might still be alive. And so he thinks there might only be one person who can help us now. And this gives that uh, production designer Danilo Donati a chance to just go even crazier, <laughs> turn things up to 11. We're now in a whole other dimension. So I want this to be as crazy and surreal as possible. They encounter beings that just are nebulous and soulless, and it is absolutely as weird as we can possibly get. So we come back to uh, Azura. Zarkov is captured by Azura, and she is fascinated with him just as he is somewhat fascinated with her as she reminds him of his departed wife. And uh, she is fascinated with him because he was able to access her to some extent through Aura's ring. And meanwhile, they've sent uh, Aura off to be tortured again. Poor Aura. Uh, She's (laughs) going to be tortured again because as a way to punish Ming. So we cut back to Baron and Dale, and Baron's still mopey, and Dale's like, come on. She kicks him into gear. We got to turn this thing around. And and, in the same way the first movie showed the citizens of Mongo, the human spirit of friendship through Dale, they see the human spirit of perseverance. And and just like that, Baron is inspired to fight back for the kingdom and rescue Aura. It doesn't take much to convince Baron, it seems. I try to keep that consistent. So he figures out a way to use these ice monsters. He's going to gather them up and bring them back with them as this first wave of attack. They start heading back to the palace. We cut back to the ring dimension. Flash and Thunder have found Ming, and he has slowly grown some semblance of control over the ring dimension. And Thunder initially feels betrayed by Flash. She wasn't aware that's who, were, who they were trying to find. Ming killed her father. She's she's torn. There's an initial fight between Flash and Ming, but Flash is like, no, we were sent here by Azura. And Ming is like, oh, okay, I will help you, but you have to let me come with you and fight by your side. So Flash and Thunder have an argument, but ultimately they agree to let Ming help them and they are going to leave this ring dimension. Concurrently, uh, Aura seizes an opportunity to break free of her captors and she sets a plan into motion to rescue Zarkov and get Ming's ring back from Azura. All at this point now, all the plot lines are converging at the same time. Aura is getting Zarkov, and Zarkov is heartbroken to have been reminded of what he lost, but he he's snaps out of it, and he goes with Aura. Uh, they run into Flash and Thunder and Ming as they appear out of this ring, and there's this initial struggle amongst the group as to who should wield it. Flash says, no, it should be Thunder. She's the she's sort of the most pure of us all at this point. Uh, so Thunder and Zarkov go off to track down Aura's ring because Zarkov believes that the two rings together can destroy each other. Uh, Ming suddenly disappears because he has taken off to fight Azura 
head on uh, while Flash and Aura are then left to fight Azura's minions and they take them off to distract them from Zarkov and his uh, and his crew that he's got. At this time, they are then uh, joined by the fighting ice giants in Baron and Dale and Freya and Toe. And so this becomes that big epic battle, kind of like we saw in the first one. Lots of uh, craziness going on. Zarkov and Thunder find Aura's ring. Thunder's killing a bunch of guys. Zarkov destroys both rings. But what happens is it frees an entire universe that had been captured by Azura. It's this ring dimension universe and is now uh, no longer captive by these rings. Flash and company finally make their way to Azura where they find Ming under her control. Flash and Ming finally have their legit sword fight they never got in the first movie. Uh Uh, Flash seems like the victor moving on to Azura. Flash duels with her. Zarkov and Thunder show up. Zarkov releases this ring dimension that immediately attacks Azura as revenge, causing her to disappear and it all fades away. They turn to grab Ming, but he has disappeared again. And the movie ends with signing of the peace treaty, followed by a double wedding ceremony of Dale and Flash and Baron and Aura. But (laughs) one final scene before we close out, there's a tracking shot showing a long crater. And then it reveals a Mongo ship that has crashed into the ground. The shot grows wider and wider. And Ming stands up into frame and starts laughing maniacally when, as we pull back, we see the New York City skyline in the background. Dun, dun, dun. This sets up a third movie where Flash has to return to Earth to save the world from Ming and Flash Gordon, King of the Impossible. <laughs> nice. Love it. Please tell me this would be a Ralph Bakshi film. Is that what this rotoscoping is going to be all about? It would be like that. Yes, very much like that. (laughs) That would be cool. Yeah. All right, Jeff, what do you got? Okay, so mine takes place today. And it would start with like a pan from outer space, like where it's coming down to the earth and blah, 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 blah. And eventually it lands on, not the shot itself lands at a uh, football stadium of a junior college. And there's a game going on. You can hear the cheering of the crowd and stuff like that. And out of the gates shuffles this guy wearing a letterman's jacket. As he's heading down the street, you see he walks by one person who starts coughing violently, which but he doesn't pay attention. You know, he's just walking along. So then he walks by another person and they're coughing violently, but he still doesn't notice until he walks by a third person like at a bus stop and they're coughing violently. And then all of a sudden he starts kind of noticing and he looks around and he sees more and more people that are all coughing violently. And he starts looking around trying to figure out what's going on. And as he does, he sees a spotlight in the sky that seems to be, as opposed to one of those kind of automated ones, it seems to be looking for something. Uh, And he can tell that it's coming from not too far away. So out of curiosity, he tracks down the source of that light and he finds what looks like a crazy old man who's pointing at the skies, mumbling to himself. You can overhear him talking about, could this be? No, no, it can't be. It can't be. He, he, he's dead. That, that, that can't actually be what, what's happening. And so then the guy with the jacket, which we can now see the back of the jacket says flash on it, comes up and he's just like, excuse me, excuse me, what's going on here? And, and the guy, you know, it takes a little while to get his attention. But finally, when he does, he looks up and you can tell that this old man recognizes this kid. And then his eyes get really wide and then all all of a sudden he says, you need to come with me right now. And then he runs away. And then the the kid out of interest kind of follows him along and says, sit down right here and you need to get into this, this ship. It's what you're destined for. So finally, Flash does get into the ship and they fly off towards Mongo where they land in the slums. And they keep talking about how life is so much worse ever since our old ruler Baron was deposed. But then uh, a troop of soldiers go by and they all have to hide because apparently this is like a this is like the Gestapo 
or something like that. And the commander, his head appears to be like this flame. It just looks like it's on fire. So anyway, they keep looking around about the plague and everyone says that we don't know anything about that, but you have to go. The only place to find out would be in the palace. So they end up having to sneak into the palace. And when they do, they see that there are these rockets that seem to keep heading into outer space. And they all seem to be carrying some sort of chemical like dust. So as they're investigating it, the crazy old man, which you find out his name is Hans Zarkov. He's not very subtle. And so he starts making too much noise. They end up getting captured and Zarkov ends up getting killed. And Flash is taken away to be tortured by the boar worms. This entire time, he's kind of insisting, like, what's go- like, I don't know any of you people. What's going on here? I don't understand what's happening. It's when all of a sudden, one of the guards removes their hood, and we see uh, a rather attractive-looking young female, about the same age as Flash, who introduces herself as Dale, the daughter of Baron and Aura, who rescues Flash and gets him to uh, Zoltan, this flying birdman who flies him away to their hidden base. Flash kind of explains this plague and, and Zoltan kind of like confronts him with like, well, don't you recognize this place? Don't you know why this is a big deal? And not really. He's like, well, your parents came here, you know, years ago and this they, they were our greatest heroes and blah, blah, blah. But then afterwards, they said then Ming collapsed and Baron took over. But then after that, uh, a new power rose up, overthrew Baron, and now overthrew all of the kingdoms. It's all under the thumb of Captain Torch and his Gestapo. And if anybody causes trouble, they drop this plague on you. They call it the death dust. And that must be what happened to your Earth. The only thing that we know is that there is a rumor of this cure on this on one of our far out planets called Phrygia. But no one who has gone there has ever come back. So Flash and Dale decide that they're going to want to to go and and save everything. So they head to Phrygia and sure enough, Phrygia is a frozen planet and they run into like monsters and there's the locals and blah, 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 blah. And they get captured by the locals and they're just about to be like executed when all of a sudden Prince Baron shows up and rescues them. And then with the cure in hand, Flash realizes his, his destiny is that like his dad was a hero, but then went back to Earth and is just kind of like, I've never, you know, fit in on Earth, but this is what I was really meant to do. And that he needs to unify all of the kingdoms now that with this cure, they can actually win. So they go back to the capital. I wanted Dale because that was one of the things that I thought very, you know, 1950s of them. Dale had no faculty whatsoever. Like she was just a hapless follow along. She might've slapped somebody one time. I think she hit someone with a pillow. But anyway, so this time I wanted... <laughs> wanted her to actually have a fight sequence so she's the one that's going because she was raised by her mother aura and baron she's the one that's going to fight like have a hand-to-hand combat with captain torch and she's actually going to defeat captain torch and then flash goes to the throne room once they're they're able to finally get their victory and find sitting on the throne is ming the merciless and Ming, of course, as bad guys do, goes through this like long diatribe talking about before Flash's father, Flash Sr., had killed him, he had transferred his consciousness into his ring so he can't ever really die. And so, you know, and you will be the next to fall by my hand. And as revenge, I'm going to conquer Earth. So then they do get into their big sword fight, their big battle. And then right before the end, Flash Jr. is about to win. And then Ming kind of responds with this, like, but don't you realize you fool? Like, you can never defeat me. I am, I am Ming. I am the universe. And then Flash, picking up his sword, says, well, I guess this is when Flash conquers the universe. And as he brings down his sword, boom, fade to black. And that's when the credits roll. 
<laughs> Flash conquers the universe. <laughs> that was an interesting reboot. I was I was having a hard time following it at first. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> not being a great screenwriter, I'm not exactly sure how. Like the idea would be the subplot, I guess, is that this is about Flash Jr. kind of discovering his identity, and you know he got injured, so he couldn't continue playing football, and so now realizing that this is his destiny. So there would be a little bit of a self-discovery going on amongst all of this action. And how old is Flash Jr.? That was the one part I was trying to. Well, out. what has it been like? Thirty years? So I yeah. guess he'd have to be like maybe a little bit. Um, Almost. That's what I said. 40. <laughs> yeah, but they didn't have to have kids right away. So that was my thought that like, that's why okay. I thought junior college. So maybe he's like 22, 23, 24, somewhere right in there. I don't want to make him a high school kid. I'm tired of movies about high school kids. Yeah. So instead making it like a college kid. Okay. All right. A little bit of Jeff and a little bit of Carlin's in that I, I would say that where I'm taking this not present day and not two years after, but how about the 20-year anniversary of Flash Gordon, the year 2000? That's when this film is set. And we would finally get Flash Gordon 2, Return to the New World. So there's still peace on Mongo 20 years after the defeat of Ming the Merciless. Emperor Baron has reigned in honor, charging Flash Gordon to act as ambassador for planet-wide unity. And there have been occasional uprisings by the Fire People or Queen Azura and her magic men who are trying to steal Ming's ring from the Royal Vault. Now Flash has defused these conflicts with the help of King Thun of Ardentia, who was brought back to life by fusing him with an actual lion to become a true lion man. Oh, nice, <laughs> nice. Okay. Now, Dale and Flash have had a daughter named Alex, who's an intelligent young woman, but is unsatisfied with life on this idyllic world. Alex dreams of life on her parents' birthplace of Earth, imagining that there are new adventures and discoveries to be made there since Ming decimated the planet before she was born. But her parents try to convince her to enjoy and appreciate this world they've worked so hard to keep peaceful. While camping alone near Queen Azura's castle, Alex strikes up a romance with Prince Zarin, Queen Azura's son, and learns that his mother is planning a trip to Earth. Alex is thrilled when the queen invites her along, becoming a seemingly more supportive mother figure for this ambitious girl. Now, using the teleportation powers of her magical white sapphire, Queen Azura powers a starship that makes jumps across the galaxy. And arriving on Earth, they find the formerly decimated planet to be rich with many caves full of gems, beautiful forests and waterfalls. The queen sends Alex and Zarin out on many missions and trusting them with the naming of areas of the kingdom like a modern day Adam and Eve while she makes contact with the surviving inhabitants. And they survive encounters with mutated animals like vicious flying squirrels with lizard tongues <laughs> and eight legged bears, which exhilarates Alex. Meanwhile, Flash and Dale learn of Alex's flight from Mongo with Queen Azura and together with Thun make their way back to a home that is not as they remember it. After a few days, Alex and Zarin find Queen Azura to have gained the allegiance of the local inhabitants who seem to welcome her benevolent rule, digging precious gems out of mines and bringing them to her, explaining that each has their own unique properties such as gravity manipulation. Flash, Dale, and Thun arrive to rescue Alex only to find that they are viewed as invading villains. Alex chastises them for assuming the worst and wanting to take away this newfound purpose she's been given on her ancestral home. When Thun is attacked by a horse,
part of Azura's magic men and accidentally kills an Earthman in the process, the trio of would-be rescuers are taken as prisoners. Zarin proposes to Alex, giving her a ring that was originally a gift from his mother, asking her to abandon her barbarian lineage, and join their noble family, bringing order to this exciting new world, which they will eventually rule as king and queen. Alex accepts, but during an interaction with an Earth girl in the village that night, she realizes that they are actually being mind-controlled by Azura and subjugated against their will when the girl uses a familiar phrase that Azura is fond of. Alex then finds a burial ground for these mine workers who the queen has been working to death. Horrified, Alex realizes that she was being manipulated. She tries to tell the truth to Zarin about his mother, but he violently rejects his new fiancé and brokenhearted, reveals Alex's supposed delusion to the queen. Now concerned, Azura sends a team of magic men to assassinate and kill Alex, who escapes to the jailing caves and sneaks some power jewels into the cells of Flashdale and Thun, which gives them abilities that enable their escape. In a final battle using levitation power, super strength, and more new abilities, Flash's team is able to defeat the magic men, and then Azura sicks her mind-controlled slaves on the heroes, and they stop fighting, not wanting to hurt the innocent attackers and are eventually overtaken. Alex goes for the attack on the queen and has to fight Zarin to get to her, injuring but not killing her former love. The queen then tries to mind control Alex, but finds she cannot due to her engagement ring, which cancels out the mind control properties. Alex nabs the queen's white sapphire necklace and subdues her, freeing the earth people from their mind control. Azora is taken prisoner and the family decides to return to Mongo for sentencing, but promises to return to help the new inhabitants of Earth rebuild as credits roll. So, so wait, this all takes place on Earth? Yes, this is okay. kind of a Masters of the Universe situation. Oh, where I, I was thinking out that. Of a lower budget. I don't know that I would have said that part, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, so I, th- I thought, you know, we, we saw Mongo, there's more to explore, but what happened to Earth after yeah. Ming decimated it? Come on. And see, that's my Flash Gordon 3 plot, is uh, going back to Earth. It's yeah, funny. Yeah, exciting. And yeah, it was interesting. We kind of all had some similar pieces there. We did have. And, and also, you made me feel, both of you made me feel bad for uh, kind of dissing Defenders of the Earth earlier because of the kids. <laughs> <laughs> so, which of these pitches will conquer our hearts? Let's get to the votes. CT, where do you fall? Well, Adam, I think I'm going to go with yours because you have uh, Queen Azura, and I, and I like that, uh, that direction. All right. Jeff, how about you? I don't know that any of us really went the campy route, which I kind of like having that option of making it campier, which I feel like CT, yours, was, yours has the potential for campiness. I like being on Mongo. Not that your story was campy. I'm not saying oh, that, but no, you know yeah. what I mean? For me, to be honest, like Adam, the being on Earth thing, that just, I don't know, that, that creeps me out a little bit. So I would go with CTs. <laughs> All right. Well, I also, uh, I'm going to go for CTs as well, mainly because I, I just felt like there was, there was so much baked into it. And it's kind of like digging deeper into that world, but introducing a new villain at the same time, which I thought was kind of fun. Plus the whole idea of going into that ring dimension brought me back to Supergirl and uh, (laughs) the Mansion Zone. So I won my heart right there. And plus, I would love to see the rotoscoping because that's that's something I miss. Well, the the rotoscoping was just the opening credits aspect, and then it would be live action from there. I was just thinking that that for the credits, it would be rotoscoped animation. Oh, that's fine. That's fine, too. Well, it sounds like we didn't need your tie-breaking, Jeremy. No, I was torn between Adam and C.T., 
but we're going CT. So how can we flesh it out anymore? Or do we leave it as is? Well, CT, remind me with Queen Azora, what was her main evil deed? She had created these rings and she had captured a ring dimension and used that to power uh, these two rings. So she was, these beings that lived in this world were held captive and used to generate the power that she and then Ming and Aura used. But I mean, like the inciting incident where she captured Flash, right? Um, oh, yes. And, and she she attacks uh, She attacks them uh, while they're uh, having this uh, big ceremony for the peace, peace treaty. Yeah. Okay, that's right. Yeah, that's what I was trying to remember. Okay, so it was in that moment. All right. So as they're kind of bringing together the different groups, the grand gathering, we're going to see all the people of Mongo, correct? We would see the representatives, kind of like what we what we see in mm. the uh, right before the football scene in the first one. You see some people from Ardentia and Arborea and the Sky City and Phrygia and so on. I, I feel like what we need there, because again, like Jeff was pointing out, to get the campiness in there, I think it would be very fun just to have like kind of a cultural celebration. So everybody's doing their different, some people do a dance, some people are doing their artistic developments, but, it's, but some of it is like really creepy and weird, you know, and you see a lot of uh, you know, side glances and, and stuff, you know. Now can we, because I do feel like, I feel like there was a running joke about lizard men, because- there there yeah. was a lizard man in the cage thing on Arbor with Flash too. So yes. can we have like can we flush out a little bit of lizard men like the lizard man culture? I mean, could it be that that is the dimension? It's uh, well, I mean because you're saying like she she gathered a whole dimension into her ring. Could it just be that she made the lizard men disappear so it's a little more personal to the people of Mongo? Like maybe the lizard men were scary, but they weren't necessarily evil or something. And, or their and, souls. As there's this lizard men used ooh. to have souls, but now the lizard men yeah. souls are in this in this oh, ring. Oh, okay. The rich yeah, something like that. Subtitle. But it'd be funny if their souls were like really nebishy and like you know I don't know I don't want to say Woody Allen esque, but you know like their like their actual essence is pretty funny and dorky, and so all that was left was their feral side, you know, which is why people have feared them for all this time or whatever you know but i like the idea that like when we when they get transferred to that dimension maybe or when they get freed you know everybody's like whoa that was the lizard man i'd yeah. you know like it'd been so many generations they all have like british accents and they're all just like super intellectual yeah. oh, hello mm, i know yes that's how they are in the ring dimension they talk like that <laughs> yeah <laughs> What uh, one I one idea I also had that I uh, decided to cut, and I thought, well, this this is perfect. This could be the deleted scenes on the d- DVD. Is there's the floating robot that says, "Hail, Flash Gordon, yeah, savior of the universe." I thought, well, maybe this movie needs a robot buddy character that could camp it up some. If you're Boy, looking for that, we're yeah. going to what's his name from Masters of the Universe, <laughs> Gwildor. <laughs> yeah, we are Gwildoring it up. Uh, it's I the think, T-Bob of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> well, because the, the problem is, like, because I believe there were, CT, do you know, were there action figures of Flash Gordon? I feel like I saw, like, at that recent, like, the Toys That Made Us documentary, that there was, like, a failed line of Flash Gordon figures. I don't know if there that were um, Flash Gordon figures for the uh, cartoon. And then years later, more recently, there were the uh, oh, was it Biff Bang Pow? I think did the line about the movie. I think those are the first ones uh, for the movie. Okay, because I, I just feel like 
they they would have said, you know, we kind of we kind of missed the boat the first time around. You know, it's 1982 now. Let's get that action figure line because Star Wars is still going strong. Right. You know, so they they probably would do that. So that's why I feel like the the mention of a robot sidekick seems almost necessary. Now, the way to maybe make it funnier even is one of the things that was done in Defenders of the Earth is Dale gets mortally wounded and her consciousness gets transferred into a computer. So what if it was, that was like Voltan or somebody like ends up getting his tr- consciousness transferred into a little robot body and he's like complaining about it the whole time. So it's Brian Blessed's voice, you know? In the robot. So, so okay, that keeps him alive in some way. Right. But what should his robot body look like? That's the question. You know, it has to be totally, you know, like he's just so upset by it. Like probably, you know, three feet high. And I'm trying to imagine like, would he be a levitating one or would he complain that I can't even fly? It's uh, well, Deep Roy is in the first movie, maybe, but maybe Deep Roy comes back as uh, a robot. And well, that he's the body, but Brian Blessed is the voice then. <laughs> That'd be great, actually. And Deep Roy, for people, he he was like all of the, uh, you know, the Oompa Loompas and the Tim Burton, Willy Wonka movie. That, that's Deep Roy. Yeah, he's like Aura's pet or whatever, right? Like yeah. right as she shows up in the uh, very skimpy outfit, she's like got Deep Roy on a leash or something. Yeah, right. I like that a lot, though. I think that's perfect. Um, now, I'm just wondering, because I know you, you mentioned about Kathleen Turner as the, the big bad guy like she doesn't strike me as villainous at least not in the the max van sidow type way like how, how do you picture that going well i was looking for an actress from the era who had the more like sultry look like i see her as being somewhat more seductive oh. and and initially when i was thinking about using her and, and even in the if you go back to her original character in the comic strips and the cartoon she's another uh, one who's trying to go after flash mm. and I thought, well, let me let's let me change it a little bit. Let me have her and Zarkov be more of an int- of an item, and that kind of makes it less of a oh, here we go, somebody after Flash again. <laughs> uh, now so. you know studio interference here, but Jeff, if you be more inclined, I, I you know I was imagining if we were looking for alternates, Sarah Douglas from Superman Two, I thought Man, would be awesome. Who in the Superman franchise? Uh, again, that was because I was picturing Max Van Sydow, but uh, I guess I, that makes more sense to see Kathleen Turner, like you said, especially after uh, what was Body it, Body Heat? Heat? Yeah. Yeah. I keep picturing uh, Romancing the Stone, and that, we don't want that <laughs> Kathleen. No, Turner. no, we don't. This is, but we're saving her from that fate. Yeah. So I, I think it works too because it's nice to have an American in the role just as a kind of counterpart you know you can show you know different shades of villainy rather than the classic british villain right so i think she could have a different attitude that would work pretty well so i mean otherwise the idea of the ring dimension now we're we're putting the lizard men there i feel like we could get a torch character jeff your captain torch you know flame head there somewhere just wandering gets scared and runs off or whatever i don't know um i was trying to imagine Imagine like what other types of creatures we could suggest to the production designer to come up with. You know, the one thing I was just thinking in my mind too right now is, you know, Dino De Laurentiis, the producer here, you know, he also produced that crazy 70s King Kong movie, right? Because they spent all this money on this giant animatronic that didn't work. I feel like he'd want to use that. You know, he'd be like, look, I, I got to get my, my my money back somehow this way. Let's, 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 they'll kind of retrofit it and maybe that could be another, you know, in the, the ring dimension at some point, they have to fight a giant gorilla, you know? <laughs> yeah, that that or yeah. 
You could be one of the ice monsters that uh, Baron true. has to face with his crew. He just covered the monkey with ice. Now, is John involved in this at all? Because we might need to get a giant spider as well. I think <laughs> we might have to work that in somehow. <laughs> you got to make it wacky. And you got to have, like I said, kind of that Italian touch of like, hey, whatever, put it in there. I don't work it great. There you go. Let me offend all our Italians. Totally how Italians sound, yeah. <laughs> Now, for me, not being overly familiar with Flash Gordon canon, now is Ming, because for me, that was the surprising thing about yours, was Ming and Flash Gordon teaming up. Now, is that something that would happen from time to time, or is that going to be like, what? Uh, I don't know if I'm that familiar with it either. I think that I saw this as, you know, this, uh, we're going to unite against a common foe, but it does, it's a very short-lived uh, team up. Okay. Very, very tenuous and uh, doesn't last long at all. Well, yeah, not in a bad way. Just it would be interesting because then you would get that if you had like diehard Flash Gordon fans, they would be you know shocked by. <laughs> well, I think up. they're all dead. I think it's very possible. <laughs> <laughs> they literally died hard. Well, no, see, but... you'd, you'd think that about the Shadow too, but as we saw, there are closet Shadow fans out there. So yes. okay, that's showing. Yeah, I guess they're not the original Flash Gordon fans, but you're talking to the fans of this film. So, but I think that again, it's an interesting dynamic to play with i think that was one of the other appeals of the pitch was to say okay so big and flash have to you know watching watching their backs the whole time but they have to get along for long enough to to kill the greater evil i think that's kind of a classic trope but it fits really well in this again this campy universe because the banter that they could have back and forth yeah. would be pretty fun yeah and probably more between dale and ming that's what i'm gonna wait was dale in the dimension with them no this was so this was Thunder, so it was Flash, Thunder, and Ming, which I thought yeah. could be interesting too, having the Grace Jones uh, uh, character in there with the two of them, and uh, that that I thought added a lot uh, to the dynamic. Yeah, almost like a Frodo and Sam and Gollum there, you know, like that whole <laughs> element where there's one that's not trusting, the other one's like, let's just make it work <laughs> for now, you know? <laughs> right, right. Well, good. Now, question, so are we wanting to bring back the original director, or is there a director of that era that you think, or would we, like, try to pass it to Lucas and say, look, you know, no, you didn't get no. your shot, but do you want to, <laughs> do you want to take this one over and see how you work with it? Well, my thought was keeping it pretty close to the same as possible. Like I, as you can tell, I love the original. So what I tried to go for was more of the original. So I want the same director. I want the same cast. I want the same production designer. I mean, obviously that stuff doesn't always happen in, in real life. The only one I was worried about was, could we get Queen back? Can we get Queen to do it again? So I came up with my twist on that is that they don't come back per se, uh, but we do get one new song off an album that comes out at the same time. Uh, so I, I struggled with this because uh, Hot Space, which came out in 82, is I, I don't particularly like that album. Uh, but I went with Put Out the Fire, which is actually an anti-firearm song. So I don't know if that works. And then in my Flash Gordon 3 pitch, I thought Hammer to Fall from the works would be the new song in that one. So we're not going obvious and going to the back catalog and getting Killer Queen and then like kind of. No, I thought this would <laughs> be their, this would be what they would, they would say. We will come back and do like one new remix or one new uh, like piece of score, but you have to debut our new song on your movie. That was there my story. But I, yeah, I, I feel like it would be a pretty fun movie. I, I don't think there's too much more that needs tweaking at this point other than to say maybe more rotoscoping can we have an animated sequence in the middle or could the ring dimension be rotoscoping again <laughs> yeah, well, Xanadu-esque yes, exactly Xanadu comes out 
also same year, right? 82. Didn't Tron come out? Could we? Yeah, that, was, that was 82. Yeah. Get some of those effects in there. I feel like again, just just a, a mishmash. You know, when it, when it's all said and done, people are gonna. But will they be attached to the story? Maybe. Will they be attached to the visuals? Definitely. We'll hope the music brings it all together once again. That's right. So just curious, how much more did you flesh out on your third film? Uh, <laughs> I, I don't have the exact amount of detail, but I do have a like a thumbnail sketch. Uh, are you interested in hearing it or do you want to? I am. I want to know yeah. how your, your return to Earth differs from mine as we close so, out here. So this takes place just a few years after Saves the Universe. So this would be like 85 is kind of where I place this. So the idea is that enemies of Ming over the past few years between uh, – the second movie in this movie continually attack Mongo. He's Ming's not there anymore, and so they they think they can conquer the planet. But Baron and Flash continue to fight off these invasion forces, and and so we pick up and in, in the middle of one such fight, and so they fight that off. That's how we begin the movie with some action. Meanwhile, we pick up with Zarkov. He's calculated that Mongo will, will once again be in proper alignment for them to travel back to Earth, and he's got some some new technology he wants to employ for that. And so the trio discuss it, and they decide they are going to leave Mongo, and there's a big tearful farewell to their new friends, Baron and R and all that, wave goodbye. And uh, they, the three uh, humans leave, and they arrive on Earth, and things are not quite the same as they once were. The world has changed. The geography is wrong, and creatures that shouldn't exist roam the Earth, and just everything is off. And uh, Zarkov, he realizes this is the result of the impossible engine. And it's the same tech that they'd used to travel to the Earth. Uh, it's it's a technology that bends probability in your favor. And this has gotten massively out of hand. And so the world is uh, is just a mess because everything that shouldn't happen has been happening. And so ultimately, Flash and crew tr uh, trace the problem to Ming's arrival on Earth. But they find this new leader is in charge who's rendered Ming brain dead. They have to stop him, put things back the way they were. Ultimately, Zarkov himself makes the ultimate sacrifice and destroys the impossible engine with the one that they use to get to Earth. And, uh, you know, big fight, blah, blah, blah at the end. Surreal, very surreal adventure. Again, it's kind of it kind of akin to what you do, did with yours, Adam, uh, just not with the kids, with uh, with the main cast there. Yeah. See, there you go. The architect of the trilogy, CT. Uh, nice. <laughs> Thought it was only fair. You put so much time into it. So the last thing yeah. I want to talk about as we as we go out here is it's a segment I want to resurrect because we used to do this in the early days oh, of the no. show, but merchandising. We got to talk <laughs> about it. There was a reason film. we went away from it, you know. <laughs> But this film lends itself so much to that. I think 1980, you know, was maybe not the height of it. But now you're getting into 82 and, you know, Masters of the Universe and all these other, uh, you know, toy lines are coming out. It doesn't have to be toys, but I'm just trying to think what would people really be on board for and getting excited about? Like, because the first thing that came to mind for me was something with the rings, whether it was either a Mighty Max style, you know, a little open up ring that has a world with all the crazy creatures inside of it, or almost like a projection system that you can wear on your finger, you know, that you could like shoot it on a wall and it shoots like slides of the film or something. Anybody else have ideas for what you think you would want to see? Or a bathing suits? Really? <laughs> that, that, you know. Yeah, I'm on board with that. Outfits yeah. of some sort. Like, well, I mean, it obviously we've talked already about, you know, Brian Blessed in his in his robot body. So we definitely have a remote control, Deep Roy, right? So that you can... <laughs> 
push that. Maybe it would just be in the style of that robot from Rocky Three, you know, that could serve you. Oh, oh wow. Rocky Four. Rocky oh, four. Rocky Four. My bad. <laughs> <laughs> when it went over the top. Yeah. No, over the top. Hey. Anyway. The other thing that I was thinking is that they would definitely have a tie in with Polaroid. And you'd be flashed, you know, and you would just stop. <laughs> I'm a marketing good. genius, folks. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, the, there was the Filmation cartoon that had an action figure line. And maybe there would be an extension of that. Maybe that whatever, whoever made those, they would do a separate action figure line that would be based on the movies. They would already have the Flash Gordon license. So I don't see why they, you know, they just you have to get the... Uh, the permissions from the actors or whatever. And I think there's a lot of potential for vehicles and play sets that they keep it at that three and three quarter scale. Actually, I would like, I would love to have that had to have happened so that I can go back and collect those vintage toys. Definitely. And even a girl's line, like with the, the costume design, like the outfits that Dale was wearing it again, we mentioned aura, they should have like a, a line of dolls. You know, it, it would fail, but they should, try it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> It should still be attempted because that was the kind of thing they were doing back then, you know, or maybe even, you know, along the lines, like, I think at Burger King, there's got to be a flash burger. He's a beefcake, you know, that you get your, your flash. Burger. <laughs> OK, OK. Uh, I'm trying to I'm trying to think of the, the Ming tie in that you could do with that, too. Like a the Ming, Ming shake. shake. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's a whole separate. This is a nerd lunch episode is what this is. We're turning it, it, it pretty much it. is. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, anyway, so yeah, well, thanks for playing along with that, guys. But most of the movies we talk about it in the end, I'm always like, and remember the toys? Do you remember this? Do you remember the tie-ins? Because then there just doesn't seem like there's yeah, that much not. to talk about with Flash. So there's not. There's like a novelization and uh, the soundtrack, and that's it. I think. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, CT, again, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for all the time and energy put into giving us a fantastic continuation of the Flash Gordon universe. Oh, it was absolutely my pleasure. I had uh, a blast and my family is looking forward to having me back uh, with them, uh, mentally at least. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, but tell us, uh, where can people find you if they want to connect with you online in the world of podcasting? Sure. The, uh, really the best place to go. If you liked what you heard, uh, here from me, you can uh, listen to nerd lunch. It's on uh, iTunes, Stitcher, Google play. You can get a whole bunch of information about it. If you go to nerdlunch.net, there's all kinds of links. You can get, uh, episode descriptions. You can find the other podcasts that I do, the other podcasts that, uh, my co-host Paxton Holly does and uh, all of our guest spots and, and so on articles we've written. And then if you are a Twitter follower, you can follow me on twitter at nerd lunch very nice and ct before we let you go you know jeff is a big quantum leap fan so i thought it was where it would be worth mentioning one of your recent artistic projects aside from a flash gordon t-shirt can you tell him a little bit about that yeah was it uh 287 that you were on with us Adam? Yeah, I think 286, maybe. We did uh, undeserving TV revivals, which is happening a lot. Like Murphy Brown is coming back, guys. <laughs> I mean, so we didn't do that pitch, I don't think. But uh, we had, uh, I think, a total of eight pitches uh, amongst uh, the Nerd Lunch crew and Adam. And uh, one of mine was a, um, a sequel series to Quantum Leap. And uh, go check it out because I poured a lot of energy into that as well. Cool. And uh, there was also a little side project with that as well. You created a, a sticker design 
design, maybe a future oh, T-shirt as well. Yes, yes, uh, that is true. So, <laughs> so that old discussion kind of came because I had been rewatching Quantum Leap with my daughter, and uh, in the third uh, season, near the end, Sam leaps into a glitter rock band. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is the band's name is King Thunder. And I went uh, through and I got a whole bunch of screenshots of the T-shirts and the album cover. And I recreated the King Thunder logo. And I have uh, I have some stickers. And I do actually have a, um, is it Redbubble? Uh, I think it's a Redbubble shop set up with the uh, King Thunder logo. So you can actually buy a King Thunder uh, T-shirt and stuff like that. Yeah, and I, I was luckily the recipient of, uh, of one of these stickers. It's on my guitar. It's awesome. So <laughs> thank you, CT, for that. It's very cool. You're welcome. You're welcome. So with that, we want to invite everybody to make sure you keep on keeping on. No, just make sure you keep an eye out on social media for upcoming episodes. You can also go to SequelQuestPod dot com for all the latest we have some really fun shows coming up some great guests some returning guests with new ideas for some of your favorite films again uh, get ready for the valentine's day we're gonna have another uh, romantic film i guess scott pilgrim versus the world i just picked it up walmart has it now in their uh, discount bin so uh, after that we got a, a three amigos sequel that's coming up so if you ever wanted to see what would happen there get the crew back together so be there get excited and until next time i certainly would love to stay and hang out with you guys longer but I'm a New York City girl. It's just a little too quiet around here for me. <laughs> wah, wah. We thank you for listening to this episode of Sequel Quest and invite you to continue the fake movie fun on social media. Submit your ideas for future episodes to sequelquestpod at gmail.com or sqpod on Twitter. The films and characters discussed on Sequel Quest are the property of their respective studios and license holders. No copyright infringement is intended. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.